Oh, thanks. Our anchor leg is Dr. Doug Bruce, who uh, is going to speak to us on a problem that we're becoming better and better, uh, at least in terms of understanding, but that doesn't mean it's easy, right? We understand a little bit more about opioid use disorder. Um, we know that perhaps all of us were implicit or uh, complicit with leading to it because of using pain as a vital sign and the turn of the century and trying to do something with opioids. Um, but Doug's a great guy to have speak about this because he's got a lot of practical experience. He's done studies, he's led uh, guidelines. Uh, he's currently the Associate Chief of Clinical Affairs at, at BU in Boston. And it's a great pleasure to have you here again with the Ryan White Conference. Welcome back. So good afternoon, it's great to be here. So wonderful to be in person. I have no idea why this is flashing red, but if I fall over and pass out because of the redness, someone come and do CPR. My family would be grateful. At least I presume my family would be grateful, but. Um... All right, I have no financial conflicts. Someone like, would like to create a financial conflict, come see me after the meeting. The learning objectives are in the slides you received. I won't go over them again. You can uh, take a look at them. So you might think that this is a map from when there was that opioid epidemic years ago. Um, I hate to tell you, this is the most recent data, which is from 2020. That epidemic that was years ago actually is a continuing problem. But it's probably been continuing for longer than you actually think that it's been continuing. Right? We're not actually in the first opioid epidemic. Um, there was an opioid epidemic way back in the 1950s that actually led to the creation of methadone maintenance when the city of New York was drowning in opioid overdose and went to an endocrinologist at the Rockefeller and said, could you help us find a solution for this heroin problem that's destroying New York City? Right? And that wasn't even the first opioid epidemic because actually New York City had a heroin maintenance program for a short bit after World War I because people were coming from Germany with this brand name medication called heroin. That's his brand name, by the way. I don't know if we owe copyright dollars to Bayer Pharmaceuticals for that, but that's its brand name. So opioids continue to be a problem. I think it's just really important that you don't assume that because we're in California and it's a lighter blue, this is not a political statement. This is just a, with the CDC colored California, that it's lighter blue, that that doesn't mean there's not a problem. I've walked all around here. If you need uh, information around how to buy drugs in San Diego, let me know. I can point you in the right direction. It's not far from here if you take a nice walk, all right? Drugs are pervasive. Our patients struggle with drug use. And so even if you say, this is not what I came to the Ryan White Conference to do, this is actually something that's really important for you to know about, okay? And it's important because your patients need you to know about it. All right, so it's not a, just an American problem. This is a global problem. So um, I love Africa and I never thought that I would be asked to go to Africa to help with a heroin epidemic. But just so you know, there's a global heroin epidemic and where there are drugs and where there are syringes and where there's already HIV in an environment, it's a nuclear disaster. So you can see in this cohort of women, 64% of the women had HIV, right? So complete, 
and there, you know, there's no syringe exchange. There was no nothing going on other than the transmission of HIV, right? And obviously, you can figure out the huge disparity between uh, HIV rates among men and women is all of those women were commercial sex workers, many of whom were victims of sexual violence and under the employment of men. So there's some basic principles that we all need to get straight at the beginning, right? Number one is everybody deserves dignity and respect, right? And I know that all of you are going to believe that, but all of you are going to groan when you see the patient coming in at four o'clock on a Friday asking for Percocet, right? And I groan too, right? Um, but everybody deserves dignity and respect. Number two, people who use drugs are people. That's why the language has become people first. And malingering, manipulation, all of these things are just survival mechanisms. Don't take it personally. I had a counselor once, she wasn't my counselor, uh, but uh, she was a counselor in the drug treatment program. And she was so upset one day. She was livid. She was so angry that one of the patients had completely played her. All right. Have you ever been played by a patient? If not, you're living in ignorance. Okay. Like you've been played. She got, she got played. And I just had to say, wait, wait, can we just pause for a moment? Because this was beautiful. Like this was masterful. Like this guy's like a genius right? I mean, he needs to have his methadone bottles revoked and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, like this, don't take it personally. Okay. Don't take it personally. All right. So when we think about substance use disorders, um, you could read the DSM-5 if you'd like, or you can just remember that it's reinforcing behavior and there's a loss of control. So uh, if you haven't experienced addiction, do you have an iPhone? Do you know anyone under the age of 20? Right? My, I have three teenagers. I'm not sure I recommend having three teenagers all at once, but I couldn't figure out how to change their ages after they were born. Um, so I, it's amazing the number of times they reach for their phone, they pull it out, and they look at Instagram, People help me. I don't know all of these things. I'm a complete Luddite, but I'm addicted to my phone, right? It's all the same behavior, right? It's reinforcing and you've lost control. But what if your iPhone, when you picked it up and you looked at Instagram, it was better than the best sex you've ever had? First, give me that phone, okay? <laughs> but, but really, that's... That's what you have to understand is that for a heroin user or for someone who uses drugs, they're using something that cranks the dopamine up way beyond the dopamine experience from an orgasm. So why do people take drugs? Well, one reason is just to feel good, right? I just told you it's better than sex, right? Which is not an endorsement or recommendation, just so we're clear. A lot of my patients do it to feel better, right? They are depressed. They're, the number of people that have told me because they're sleeping outside tonight on the street. Again, when I was walking around, saw a bunch of people who are sleeping, right? And they were uh, under the influence. Why? If you're going to sleep outside, run the risk of being physically assaulted, you want something to numb yourself, right? It's completely rational. They want to feel better. 
Again, this is the reason that when that patient comes into clinic Friday at four o'clock, why Friday at four o'clock? Because they know. It's the same reason you have the resident page to two in the morning needing pain meds. Because the resident's gonna say, whatever. Like, whatever the patient wants, I wanna go back to sleep, right? Does that ever happen to you? So um, a guy, Michael Brown, who's kind of famous, he won a Nobel Prize um, for this thing called cholesterol and LDL, told me once that everything is on this continuum. And I have searched for things that aren't on this continuum, and I haven't found any that are off it yet. Um, but what is this continuum? This continuum is what, um, so for example, Down syndrome, right? You might think Down syndrome's not on this, right? Down syndrome, trisomy 21 is genetic, right? But what influences it? Maternal age, that's an environmental factor, right? There are all kinds of things. And so it becomes really important to understand that substance use disorders, like all things in medicine, have a genetic component, but also have environmental triggers and aspects, right? So when we think about treatment, whether it's for opioid use disorder, methamphetamine, any kind of substance use disorder, we need to address the biologic component, right? The genetic, the physiologic stuff. We look to medicine for that. We got to address the environmental aspects, right? People will used to always say, oh, methadone's a failure. People still use other drugs. Well, if all you've done is given medicine to address the biology and you haven't done anything else, people are going to find another drug. Because if I'm still homeless on the street, going to get assaulted, maybe I'll drink a fifth of vodka because I need to go to sleep. That's not methadone's failure. I would say it's not the patient's failure. It's that the problem has not been adequately or robustly treated. So just in case you don't think there's any genetic component, uh, Nora Volkow published, or actually has talked about this, this isn't her paper, but um, others who have done some work are looking here at, these are actually medical students. Um, so take that with a grain of salt, maybe, I don't know. Um, but this is looking at dopamine receptors in their brains. And you see that on average, they can group people into these kind of high receptor and low receptor groups. And then they give them Ritalin, right? Now, you'll be interested to know that some people say they don't like that experience. If you've ever talked to a substance user, I used to always ask people, like if they were a heroin user, hey, do you like cocaine? Right? And they'd be like, no, that's gross. And I like, tried that stuff. I hate that stuff. It was, I was shocked. I was like, really? Because it gives you more dopamine too, right? I mean, I wasn't, again, I was not recommending that people take up an additional habit. But I was just trying to understand like, well, why one drug versus another, right? If the outcome's the same, but it's different. And some of the difference is just the way the brain's programmed, right? We all have different brains, okay? This is not a lecture on the plasticity of the brain, but the brain's incredibly plastic, right? It's super interesting. And it adapts to things that happen in the environment. But if you're a high dopamine receptor person and you take something, like cocaine or like methamphetamine, you have an aversive response. It's not as great as you thought it would be. In fact, a treatment for cocaine dependence, which is disulfiram, which raises basal levels of dopamine, makes your brain look like a high dopamine brain, people decrease their cocaine use because it's not that good anymore. Right? But if you're that low dopamine group and we give you methylphenidate and it raises your dopamine, what's your response? 
If you're like, this is awesome. I'm so glad I enrolled in this study. I'm going to change my name and re-enroll because you're paying me and this is awesome, right? So what's important to understand is that really and truly, we've got wiring in our heads that are really important for survival, right? It would make sense that when you eat food, you get a dopamine rush, right? Because for the survival of the species, ongoing food consumption is important. It would not be surprising that you get a dopamine pulse as an orgasm when you have sex, because again, right? Children propagating the species is important for the survival of the species. Well, what happens when you co-opt all that circuitry with something much more powerful, right? I, I won't show you the slide, but, but they did this, they stuck a rod in the nucleus accumbens of rats and they were measuring basal dopamine amounts and um, amphetamines, which are not as potent as methamphetamines, increases dopamine levels by a thousand percent in the nucleus accumbens. So like unbelievable, right? So you inherit a new patient, Bob, he's 45. He comes in for his refill of oxycodone, 30 milligram tablets, two every six hours for a total of 240 tablets for the month. That's the maximum number that Medicaid will pay in the state of Connecticut is 240 tablets. You notice that there hasn't been a urine tax in five years, but there have been a few recent emergency department visits for methamphetamine intoxication. Today, Bob's agitated, struggling to sit still wondering why his refill is taking so long. So what would you do in this situation? Curse the provider who left you a mess. Give the refill and find a way never to see the patient again. Call the social worker or anyone to try and defuse the situation and get the patient into treatment. Talk with the patient about the ED visit and amphetamine use to gauge interest in treatment and refill the medication or do that, but not refill the medication. So what would you want to do in that situation? Oh, no, I will actually, the question is, what would you want to do, right? What would you want to do in that kind of a situation? Now, I've left out an important piece of information, right? I haven't told you whether that urine toxicology also had oxycodone in it the medication that's prescribed, would that potentially change what you do? Yeah, of course it would, right? At least I hope it would, right? Because the point is that there are two situations, right? Maybe the person's getting oxycodone for a legitimate pain problem. Maybe, maybe not, right? But let's assume. If that person's taking the oxycodone, then it should be in their urine toxicology. Now, there are reasons that it might not be, right? Could be I was in more pain because you won't treat my pain adequately and I ran out early. So the thing that I always do is when I see patients, if they're being prescribed controlled substances, we, we see you and then we don't get instant results. They get sent out because it's cheaper. Um, I write down when the patient last reported taking the medication. Now, why do I do that? Because whenever I see them again, so if I see them again at the next visit and I say, you know, your urine didn't have oxycodone in it. Oh, I was in more pain. I took them early. Really? Because, you know, the day you told me, you told me, like, when I met you last, you were taking it all the time up until the visit. So you're lying to me now or you were lying to me then, but lying is a problem where controlled substances are. All right. So make sure you document well, also so you can know what each other's doing. 
So this is just what happens when your urine tox is out of sync, right? And it's all of the things I've said, but just the first, the most important thing again is to remember that sometimes you're not treating the pain, sometimes the patient has poor coping skills, and sometimes they're funding their drug habit, right? You're not the police. So I, use, I always tell prescribers, you're not the police, so you don't have to run around and chase the patient to determine this, but you should, you know, as much as you can be confident that the medications you're providing are not causing harm to that person or to other people. I'm not sure you've ever had the patient who said they don't have a problem, um, but I just want you to remember that change is a process. If you haven't uh, looked at the stages of change model, I encourage you uh, to look it up. It's really, really important, uh, whether it's pre-contemplation, which is affectionately called denial, other through contemplation and determination. The reality is that when you interact with someone, it's imperative for you to figure out where they are in their process of understanding. And you can be a heroin addict and think you need help with your heroin problem. And you can also be an alcoholic and have no idea that you have an alcohol problem, right? So you got to figure it out for each person, but you also have to make sure that as you're talking to that person, you're meeting them where they are. Maybe they need syringes so that they are not going to actually transmit HIV to somebody else or hepatitis C, right? Which is even more infectious. Maybe you need to give them naloxone so they don't go overdose, right? So this is a really old diagram. This is from the 1960s. I mean, this is Nice Wonder, Mary Jean Creek and Vincent Dole. And the basic, it's a very simple little piece. They're on the, when you're looking at it, all the top squiggly lines of being high are early in the course of addiction when someone's feeling great. As you develop physical dependence, right? What happens? You don't get high anymore, right? You're actually just spending most of your time feeling really sick. And then you're using drugs so that you feel less sick. Right. And even though cocaine and methamphetamine don't cause physical kinds of withdrawal the way, say, opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder, which can kill you from withdrawal, right? Those are like really scary sometimes. People have a sense of withdrawal, right? And will do what? Really risky things when you're in withdrawal, right? I was standing on the streets of New Haven uh, with uh, an outreach worker, and a woman walked up and I don't know why she totally ignored me. I should probably be offended. But she asked the guy next to me if he would pay her 10 bucks for a blowjob. And, you know, he looks at me. He works for Yale. I was like, no, no. He's like, no, I'm, I'm here to help you. Can I, can I get you into treatment? So what was her response? $5. Right? Now, the reason it was going down was she was an opiate withdrawal. Right now, we wanted to get her into treatment. And we had actually access to getting her treatment right away. But then a car pulled up and then she got in the car and went on and didn't engage in treatment. But the point is what? She was willing to engage in increasing risk. And if, you know, it's $10 for a bag of dope, if you're going to come down to $5, you now got to engage in two sex acts in order to have the same feel better. So this is really important. You know, our patients are living in a world of a cycle like this where I'm trying to feel better. I have to put myself at risk of violence in order to feel better. And sometimes taking my HIV therapy or avoiding risk is not the most important thing to me at this time. When we think about treatments, we're gonna talk about buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. Behavioral therapies are really important. Come to the workshop today. We're gonna to talk more about CBT and MI, right? How, these things are things you can do in clinic. 
If you learn MI and CBT, you can use it on your partner, you can use it on your children. It's incredibly helpful, right? I've had people like, well, once you, knew, once you actually learn MI and CBT relatively well, you'll realize that every time you're talking to a psychiatrist that they're doing it to you, right? You will, I've, I've called them out on it. Like methadone, only in an OTP in the United States, uh, it's efficacious. It has the best retention. When it's dosed well, it is fantastic. Buprenorphine, office-based, everyone here should have an X waiver. Everyone here should be willing and ready and able to prescribe buprenorphine. It's efficacious. It doesn't have the same retention that methadone has, uh, but is really good. Naltrexone, office-based, efficacious, and the retention is the least of the three. And the biggest problem is you have to have been off an opioid for a week before starting. Really good data from Sandy Springer and others of looking at from people released from incarceration given depo naltrexone upon release. Super helpful for patients as they re-engage back in the community. When we're looking at the mu opioid receptors, so it's an MRI at the top, PET scans. This is looking, as the PET scans looking at the mu opioid receptor. And what I tell patients is, you know what, buprenorphine and methadone, what these things are doing is it's filling up the parking lot in your brain, right? You got a parking lot, heroin fills up empty spaces, or methadone or buprenorphine can. And when they fill up the spaces, as you can see, as it turns increasingly blue going down the slide, parking spots filled, heroin can't get in there, you don't get high. And then again, going back to Mary Jean Creek in the 1960s, you see that the person who takes the little M, which is methadone, feels fine. And then if you see, they take the little H, which is obviously heroin, there's a blunted effect. Why is there a blunted effect? We filled up the parking spaces. A man is a 30-year-old who comes into your clinic, and after much creative and interesting conversation, you conclude that the oxycodone you were giving for back pain is not in the urine tox, but morphine is, right? So hopefully everyone knows that oxycodone is separately looked at in urine toxicology. Morphine is the metabolite of heroin. And so what, you, what do you do? You could hide. You could refuse to, and attendings in clinic never hide and send the fellow, but um, you could do that. Uh, refuse to refill the medication, call someone else, agree with the patient that it was a one-time thing and give all or some of the oxycodone. Or you could discuss treatment for opioids and start buprenorphine, methadone, or naltrexone, right? Well, the big three here, right? Methadone, you got to get that person to an OTP, right? So some of you may have ready access to that. When I was in New Haven, I also ran the methadone clinic so I could get people on methadone anytime I wanted, which was like the greatest shortcut ever. Um, now, Trexone requires you to be off of it for a week, may not be working, but buprenorphine is something that you could start in clinic. When you think about um, what, do you, what should you be doing for your entire patient population? Number one, screen everybody. Screen everybody. The number of times I've had patients say to me, you only screen people like me. It has been always wonderful for me to be able to respond. No, I, we screen everybody in this clinic. We universally screen. Here are two standardized questions. I just refer you to the slides. I encourage you to use these in clinic. Um, most of you may not want to it because of the answers you may get, um, but I really encourage you. You don't know how big a problem is until you start getting data on it. When you think about drug treatment, you have to think about uh, system level interventions. So something that we've been talking about for the almost actually for a decade now has been low threshold, rapid access, appropriately dosed treatment. What does low threshold mean? Low threshold means 
if it's easy, it's the Walmart effect. Why does Walmart have or Target sell groceries for crying out loud? That's crazy, right? It's a one-stop shop. It's easy to do, right? It is so easy to get drugs. They do home delivery. I mean, you can get drugs so easy. Drug treatment can be hard to get. If you institute a difficult to access drug treatment program, only Bob will offer buprenorphine on Tuesdays at 4.30. No one's gonna come. But if you say our clinic will meet, your, meet you where you are and the patient shows up and you provide treatment, you've just saved someone's life. Make sure that counseling is a culturally appropriate. I do, uh, I'm amazed at the number of things that are put out in the wrong language or with, at the wrong educational level or at the wrong anything. Uh, treat everybody. It's super important to remember there's no data to support denying or waiting to start a patient on ART or any other treatment. I have treated people for hep C who are actively drinking. I've treated uh, patients who are actively injecting. People can take their medicines, right? You have to figure out what's the regimen to help this person with. But substance users aren't idiots, right? They're struggling with the problem, right? John Coltrane, anybody know who John Coltrane is? Please, somebody tell me you know who John Coltrane is. John Coltrane got fired from the Miles Davis Quintet. You know why? He was a heroin addict. Do you know what he died of? Liver cancer. Right? Hepatitis C. John Coltrane was a genius on the saxophone. Miles Davis was a heroin addict. Marie Nicewand, who was a psychiatrist in New York City, her clientele were the rock stars of the 50s. They were the jazz guys, and they were heroin addicts. So you never know the intellectual capacity of the person you're talking to, but don't assume that they don't get it, and don't assume that they can't figure out a way to take the medication. Because I've seen it too many times. You know, I got into a fight with the Yale Liver Center because they wouldn't prescribe hep C treatment for a patient of mine who was homeless because the assumption was that he couldn't take it. And he never got treatment. Prescribe naloxone, think about being a buprenorphine provider, review guidelines on the treatment of chronic pain, reevaluate how you prescribe opioids. You'll be amazed at the number of people who are fine with ibuprofen. All right, you would be absolutely amazed. Um, we mentioned that ongoing substance use is not a contraindication. The HHS guidelines has a section on substance use I encourage you to take a look at. Think about what are the barriers to adherence. Maybe a patient should be taking something at night, something in the morning. Help patients develop a rhythm, right? Don't tell patients to put their medicine by their toothbrush if they never brush their teeth, okay? So come to the workshop. We're gonna talk about more drugs. I'm sorry I don't have samples, but it's against the law. Um, just briefly, methamphetamines, there is no pharmacological agent but there's some great things that you can do for your patients, one of which is community reinforcement, motivational interviewing, CBT, and even contingency management. All have good data. Think about it. For cocaine, there are multiple studies. There are six randomized control trials that show that if a patient takes disulfiram, they will decrease their cocaine use. You never hear it. No one talks about it. Partly it's because getting someone to take a pill is really difficult might work with methamphetamine use as well. It blocks dopamine beta hydroxylase and raises dopamine levels basally in the brain. 
So I've seen it work, it works. Maybe hard to convince someone to do it, but if you're up against a wall, think about it and talk with your patient about it. I'm open for questions and shoot me an email. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sticking with me through the end of the day. Well, well presented. The, the, let's dig in a little bit to this Lustex amphetamine. Um, what uh, we're all looking for something to do for people who have meth, heavy meth use, and yep. I assume that you put it up there because it's maybe something that's emerging but not ready for prime time. Yes, exactly. So this is a medication that's used for ADHD, and people have been thinking more and more about its use as a potential agonist. And so there was a paper last year that showed safe dosing. There's a randomized control trial that's ongoing. There was a paper published two weeks ago that's proposing a study that's going to look at people who are having methamphetamine withdrawal as a way to supplement them to try and reduce risk of relapse. So interesting, hopeful, not ready for prime time. The original study that looked at this super small numbers most of your patients would have been excluded from the trial. Um, so I would encourage people to focus on the other things we'll talk about at the workshop before going to this. But my hope is that in the not too distant future, we may have an agonist that has an approval rating for this. Okay, um, to this point, we have a lot of patients engaging in chemsex, uh, especially with GHB. Um, I just lost the question, uh, where'd it go? Well, um, what do you do in that situation? Here we go. Um, and, uh, and crystal meth, none of them recognize this is an issue. They don't think there's a problem. So they're in They're all pre-contemplative, exactly right. So, so pre-contemplation, what you have to do um, is try to present external data that the patient agrees with. So for example, um, I would have conversations with patients who would say, I don't have a problem. I say, okay. Well, you know, your parole officer has put a warrant out for your arrest. And I mean, I've literally had this conversation, right? So, and, and so it appears that even though you think that this is under control, like if we don't do something about this, there's this external consequence. Or it could be, you know, I've had to talk with, you know, mothers with children to say like, if this situation is not addressed, you know, DCF is going to take your child. Right? So some of it's trying to help them understand because you're so locked into this idea that you don't have a problem. Part of that's defensive, right? Because if you admit that you have a problem, now you've got to do something about it. If you don't have a problem and the world is just persecuting you, you're a victim and, and the victim doesn't have to actualize and change necessarily. So it's like a whole psychology that the person's adopted. So you need to give them permission that, okay, well, maybe we're not going to attack this idea that you've created this false sense of reality but maybe you want to address this because keeping your children is really important to you. Not going to jail is really important to you. Your partner not leaving you is really important to you. The fact that your family doesn't trust you is important to you. The fact that you're homeless and have no housing options because no one will let you stay with you is important to you. And so sometimes people will start making a change because they say, okay, I have to do this in order for so-and-so to help me out, but I still don't have a problem. But the hope is that over time, they'll start to realize it. What about the role of cannabis in any of this? So it's either a substitution therapy for different disorders or for pain control. 
So my disclaimer about cannabis is not that I use it, no, I don't, but is that actually I get really nervous when the goal of anything is to numb your mind. Um, so I get, I get anxious when people tell me, you know, I have to have a couple beers before I talk to my wife. Okay, you don't meet criteria for hazardous drinking, but you're getting me anxious because you're saying that your form of coping in involves a substance. So people who are using cannabis because I have no other way to address my anxiety, no other way to address my situation in the world, I get anxious because I think, well, if you ever bump up against heroin or something else that's much better, you've, you've set yourself up for this idea. So. I think it's really important that people learn non-pharmacologic coping mechanisms for those things that have been shown to have treatment efficacy. That being said, cannabinoids work really well for chronic pain and can actually lead to a reduction in the amount of opioids that people use. So I see cannabinoids as really helpful actually in people with chronic pain so that you can actually get fewer opioids in their system, which would be a win. Question about why do you think buprenorphine has lower retention rates than methadone. Yeah, so it's just the way the drug works. So if you've ever talked to somebody who's been on methadone who walked off a methadone clinic, what will they tell you? It was the worst thing that they have ever experienced in their life, right? So way, way back in the days, they used to pump up methadone doses pretty high, and they used to do that for people who are also using cocaine. Now, the, they'd be like, I don't know what their rationale was other than the fact that you got really, really sick if you walked off on a cocaine binge and it brought you back into treatment, right? So methadone doesn't treat cocaine use disorder and methadone should be dosed appropriately for opioid use disorder and shouldn't be jacked up for some other reason. But it's the opioid withdrawal that's really bad for methadone that brings people back into treatment. Um, this was dramatically shown in a study that we did Yale years ago and it was a randomized controlled trial of methadone and buprenorphine. And it was for liver toxicity because there was this concern long ago that buprenorphine could have liver issues, which it does not. Um, but that study was a one-to-one -one randomization. It had to change to a one-to-two. Had to enroll twice as many buprenorphine patients. Why? Because they would start taking buprenorphine, they would feel better, and they would walk off treatment. And there wasn't a lot of withdrawal coming off treatment, and they would disappear. So. When I start thinking about which modality, part of what I'm trying to factor in is what work is the patient doing on treatment? And sometimes, you know, patients are not in a, I mean, I've taken care of women who are victims of sexual violence and like what you're not going to do is start trying to process what's happened to them, right? And just frankly, I'm a guy. I don't process sexual trauma with women, right? We, we have separate systems in order to address that. So... I think it's really important that you work with the patient to kind of figure out what's the right modality. Some people benefit a lot from the structure of methadone clinics. We actually have a, a problem with people who are actually doing really well and start leaving that structure. If they don't have something else, like they're going to AA or NA meetings, they don't have some kind of rhythm to life. Work is incredibly beneficial to patients. Even volunteer work, anything that gives you a rhythm and a reason to get up and live your life is hugely therapeutic. But if you don't have that, um, it's really important to think they are efficacious, but different patients benefit differently. And so don't just throw a treatment at them without having that conversation with patients. Okay, and we've got to wrap up. But, uh, one question about Rimeron for uh, meth 
Yep, small studies said it looked well, larger studies said it didn't work. Okay, well, that's simple. All right, well, thank you.